Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. The subject today is, is a tough one, but one we will do anyway, right? Because yes. it's God's word and that's what counts. And so those of us who desire to live for the Lord and to live for him only, we understand the, the tension that exists. We know that as those who are in Christ are no longer to be of this world, we know we are to live in purity holiness, set apart, putting Christ on display, living for his pleasure, not our own. We know that we no longer belong to ourselves, that we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Yet we find ourselves in here, in the here and now, living in a world that so powerfully wants to influence us and win us over, or at the very least, win us back to where we once were, where we came from. Some believers deal with this tension that exists by building social walls around themselves to keep themselves safe somehow from evil. Too many believers, however, have given in in a no whole other extreme. They have let go of the purity of life presented in God's word, provided by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, only to slide into the cesspool of moral depravity. In John chapter 17, we find Jesus praying. It's known as the Lord's Prayer, the real actual Lord's Prayer. And he prays that the son would be glorified, that the apostles, the disciples would be sanctified, and that the church would be unified. In order for this to happen, Jesus also prays in that prayer something that he actually repeats twice in verse 14 and 16. They are not of this world, but they being the apostles, us, they are not of this world as I am not of this world. In other words, we should be insulated from the morally corrupting influences of our time, but not isolated from the people who are in this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is where we are, Paul addresses the problem of a member of the church who had done just that. He has surrendered to the world's corrupting, seductive call and yielded to a disgraceful sin. But we will notice that Paul doesn't only rebuke the sinner's unacceptable behavior, but also, and perhaps even more so, the church's tolerant attitude toward that sin. The Corinthian church, as we're going to see, was proud of its hands-off approach to the sins of others, sins that were in direct conflict with the standards of God's very word. Paul shows them the seriousness of this complacency, and he teaches them how churches 
are to handle a scandal through proper church discipline. One of the commentaries I read said, the church at Corinth was not only a divided church, but it was also a disgraced church. There was sin in the community, and sad to say, everybody knew about it, but the church was slow to do anything about it. No church is perfect, just as no individual was perfect, right? But our human imperfections must never, ever become an excuse for our sin. Nor turning a blind eye to it. Church discipline is not about a perfect saint coming down on an imperfect saint. There are no perfect saints, plenty of imperfect saints. So it's not about that at all. It is to be about a group of people, brokenhearted, brothers and sisters, seeking to restore an erring brother or sister within the church family. It is to be about love and discipline, coming together for the health of the church and to the glory of our God. Now, since some of the members at Corinth did not want to face this situation, do anything about it or change it, Paul deals with the problem in this chapter by giving us some principles for handling a church scandal, principles for applying in a loving, disciplinary way church discipline. So let's first of all notice what our response is to be, not one of pride, but it says respond with genuine grief. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Whoa. But then he tells us what it is in the very next sentence. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? This is where I come up with our first principle here. Respond with genuine grief. He says you should have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this. These very verses convey the idea that, yes, the news shocked and horrified Paul about the sin that was occurring. That's what those words, it is actually reported, is communicating to us. But mostly he was appalled to hear that the church had tolerated the sexual immorality, which was, he says in his words, the kind that pagans don't even have anything to do with nor tolerate. The sin in question was a form of incest. The language here, it says that he's sleeping with his father's wife. That lets us know by that wording that it is not his biological mother. It is a stepmother. Still, in any case, a form of incest. And the original language also indicates and lets us know that this was something that was ongoing. It wasn't just a time or two, but something that was ongoing. The Greek word used here for sexual immorality is the word pornea. 
And it is a broad word, a broad term referring to now from a biblical principle, from biblical understanding, referring to illicit, unlawful, or unsanctioned sexual relationships of any kind. Some of you probably already are wondering from that word, that Greek word pornea, we get our English word pornography from that very word. The kind referred to here is among the very worst, unimaginable, even among those who have no commitment whatsoever to God. In verse 2, Paul rebukes the Corinthians with blunt honesty. And he says, and you are proud? The you here in Greek is in the plural. So it's showing that Paul is holding the entire Corinthian congregation responsible for their lack of true love and discipline. Then he says, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning rather than being proud. The word Paul used here was a word used to describe, check this out. Now, this is interesting, the kind of mourning that you would do over a loved one who has just passed away. That kind of mourning is what he's talking about, which is perhaps the deepest and the most painful kind of personal sorrow possible. Instead of mourning, the people at Corinth were puffed up. Rather than being grieved, the Corinthian believers seemed to be proud of their open-mindedness, their tolerance, their political correctness, if you will, in allowing the offending brother to remain in their midst as if it was no big deal at all. Somehow, they became pridefully inflated with an incorrect destructive view of God's grace. Somehow they had come to a place where it became a cheap grace rather than true biblical kind of grace. They, they had been groping in the darkness of pride for so long that it blinded them towards the shame and seriousness of the very situation. And after Paul tells them that they should have mourned, he says they also should have put him out of their fellowship. This would have marked not only their standing against the sinful act, but also their concern for the purity of the church. And just as important, their desire to move a sinful man toward repentance and Restoration, which is what that whole thing is all about, as we will see. Instead, the church remained, hear me now, polluted and the individual unrepentant. Huge. Referring back to the term mourning that Paul used, he is basically saying the offending brother in Corinth was basically spiritually dead with regards to the things of the Lord. Therefore, bringing spiritual defilement and contamination to the body of Christ. This is something that I think the church has long lost sight of. 
today. I will mention probably again at the end of this message, but you've heard me say before, nobody sins unto themselves. And especially when it comes to sexual sin. The Bible lets us know. In fact, in the very next chapter, it tells us that when we sin, we sin outside the body. But when we commit sexual sin, we sin against ourselves. What is that about? Because it's, it's, it's a spiritual sin. Sinning against our very own spirit and soul. Which is why God holds the whole sexual thing within the context of marriage. Because when two come together, as you all you know this, there is a unity, a unifying that takes place. Soul and spirit and body coming together to become one. And so when that gets disregarded, and when someone in their complete and utter selfishness and thinking about pleasing themselves only and not pleasing the Lord with no regard whatsoever for the body of Christ, for the family in which a brother and sister might be a part of, it opens the church then to impurity, unholiness, and contamination. Not my thinking here. <laughs> if you don't like that, you're going to have to take it up with God. <laughs> and you argue that with him because that's exactly what his word is telling us. And that's what we've got to come back to, folks, as the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is serious. <laughs> serious stuff. So Paul instructs the church to finish the process that was actually started by the young man his, in his continuing sin, his outrageous selfishness. This action is as well, we will see, is intended to be redemptive. So this leads to the next principle Paul gives us for handling church discipline, starting with verse 3. It says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, when the Lord returns, what do we see here? We are called on to judge sin. Now, while Christians are not to judge one another's motives, Jesus tells us that in Matthew 7. While we are told not to judge one another's ministries and gifts. We just saw that last week in 1 Corinthians 4. We are certainly expected to be honest about each other's conduct. We are family, amen? amen. Right. And we need to understand that because we have this idea in our world today. Hey, it's my business. It's not your business, so stay out of mine. Now, that might work for the world, does not work 
is not biblical for the church of God. We're family. So when you and I came together and said, Jesus, come be the Lord and King of my heart, we became a part of his family. And so when you take it upon yourself to do your own thing without any regard for your brother or sister and sin, you made it a family matter. Sorry <laughs> if you do not like that. <laughs> Once again, take that up with God and you argue with him. And if you do, let me know how that works out. We are family. And if you're going to go and mess up and do something that's going to have an impact on the church family, you're going to have to deal with it and understand what you've taken on and the consequences of that. Since church discipline is commanded in God's word, and it is, as we're seeing here, we must obey God and set feelings aside. Amen. I've, I've was sharing, I think I was sharing with Jim just this last Thursday, some years back in a church that we were passing out in Southern California, we had a youth pastor. He was a big guy. He was like 6'5", weighed 250, 260, but he was beating up on his wife. His wife was no bigger than Vicky. <laughs> she finally had it, came to me, and let me know what was going on. Now, as you can see, I am not 6'5". <laughs> I'm, in fact, the opposite. <laughs> Take those numbers and turn them around and you've got me. <laughs> but I knew I had to do something. I, I couldn't turn a blind eye to that. Church discipline was going to have to happen. So I, um, I did the smart thing. I took somebody with me. <laughs> took another brother with me, a board member from on the church board, and and we went to see him. Initially, we went to his home, into his house. The wife is there. Bruises, bruises, just proof. But he was denying, not owning up, not taking responsibility. And the more he did that, it was like the bolder I got. <laughs> I wanted to say the matter I got, and I kind of probably was a little bit, but the bolder and more courageous I got, and I just stayed after it until he finally got to the place as he began to break down. And this is what he said. You know, I wouldn't hit her if she just wouldn't make me mad. <laughs> and I stopped him and said, did you hear what you just said? Think about that. And so we stayed after it. And that evening ended up being a good evening. He came around into confessing and repenting. We were able to get him some help with regards to his anger. I can report to you today, they are still together and happily married. Yeah. Church discipline, when it's done right and in love, God's way works. I have never, ever been excited about having to do something like that. It's not fun, <laughs> but it must be done. Paul takes a bold stand against the majority opinion in Corinth. Paul's instruction to the Corinthians was that they were to deliver this man over to Satan. <laughs> now, it's not for damnation, but it is for restoration. In order that his flesh would be destroyed and his spirit saved, Paul writes. Paul is saying, 
Stay away from this man and let him live his life of immorality away from the joy and the peace and the covering of the body of Christ. And hopefully, he will become so sick of his sin, he'll long for the days when he was in fellowship with you, where there was worship and there was joy and true love and the sweet presence of the Lord. And hopefully, he will become like the prodigal son and come to his senses upon realizing that the party life that the world makes and appears to be so good doesn't work out, isn't so good after all, having learned and discovered the pain and the heartache and the sorrow that comes with it. The goal of this harsh discipline as far as Paul is concerned, put him out of the fellowship, hand him over to Satan, something I think that happens simultaneously. When you stop and think about it, if you take someone and remove them out of the church fellowship, they are automatically, simultaneously become open targets to the enemy because they are now no longer under the church covering that God provides. So it's intended, this harsh discipline was was about all, all about restoration. It was intended to be temporary, not permanent. Good news here. It is believed, as can be seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, that the church at Corinth actually did what Paul instructed. How about that, huh? And it works to such degree that Paul was later able to instruct them in how they could welcome their brother back into their fellowship. Paul's directive about how this man should be treated by the Corinthian church is difficult for many today. It is, isn't it? So many. Brother last night came up to me after the church who has been in church for many, many years came to me after and said, thank you, I had never, ever understood that whole part about handing him over to Satan. Many today just don't get it. I think this is partly because many no longer take sin very seriously anymore. In fact, we have come to the place where we don't even hardly are willing to call anything a sin. I, it is also, I think, partly because we, we no longer draw a deep line between the church and the world that is outside of the church. I think partly is also because Satan is no longer very real to us at all. Nevertheless, these scriptures make it clear that there comes a point when a person needs to be turned over to the enemy in order to to reap the consequences of their sin. To reverse the current incorrect perception that was prevailing in Corinth and to communicate to the whole church the seriousness of the offense, in this case, church discipline, needed to be public. Again, we get confused here. Now, this doesn't mean of course, that every confrontation of sin 
just start as a public matter. That, that, is, that is not what this is about. Private sin should oftentimes be dealt with privately. But the principle seems to be that the more public, the more prominent, the more graphic, the more unrepentant the sin, the more public and official the discipline. Again, referring to Paul's comment, this is of the kind that pagans didn't even tolerate. So not only are we called on as the body of Christ to judge, we are called on to purge the sin. Look at verse 6 with me. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? This is, this is a great word picture that Paul is providing the Corinthians and us as well. They would have got that. Hopefully we will as well. But a, what a great picture. Leavening is not something that is easily seen initially, right? But it becomes very obvious eventually. Making it the perfect symbol of sin throughout Scripture. Paul's main concern was for the church, which he wants to protect from corruption. Even though the man's sin is what sparked Paul's rebuke, Paul insisted that the larger problem lay in the church itself. The church should have recognized that its toleration of such public sin went against its holy calling. Look at verse 7 with me now. Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice, which is evil and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, get rid of the old life. Everything that is represented that you did and partook of in the world, get rid of that. And now with the sincerity and truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, realizing we've been born again and saved and cleansed and restored by the blood of Jesus on the cross, move into that kind of life. Get rid of the old, take on the new. Is what he's talking about. Just like if a little yeast is allowed to get into a loaf of bread, what's it going to do? It puffs up, right? It's interesting that Paul uses that word puffed up throughout this letter because they were prideful and in their spiritual arrogance. As you know, the day of Passover was called the day of preparation. The day before Passover was the day of preparation in which the Jewish people would take very seriously 
going throughout their home and getting rid of every trace of yeast and leaven in preparation for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Not, a little, not even a little bit. It had to be clean. Are you getting the picture? <laughs> Paul draws on this as a call for our recommitment to holiness and purity on the part of the Corinthian church. The picture for us is that we have left Egypt. Amen? Egypt being a type of the world. Through the blood, our Passover lamb shed for us on the cross. So we are then, Paul says, to continue on from that point, from the point of salvation, from that point of when we laid down our lives and invited Jesus into our hearts to become our king, from that point, without the leaven of our old life, without the sins that puff up and spread throughout the church community so easily by keeping the festival. And of course, at this point, Paul is not only talking about annually, as the Jewish folks did, but day after day after day. Why? Because... Every day, Christians can celebrate our Passover, the death of Christ on the cross by ridding our lives of the old leaven. We do this, how? Through repentance and confession. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I like that, don't you? It's like, in other words, Paul saying they're all around us. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. In other words, someone who claims to be a follower of Christ but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul refers to a previous letter. We talked about this when we started our study in Corinthians. What we call 1 Corinthians really isn't 1 Corinthians. It's kind of like 2 Corinthians because there was an earlier letter. It has been lost to us, but at the time of this writing, not lost to the Corinthians. And somehow in that letter, we, we indicate here, Paul lets us know that he had instructed the Corinthians to not associate, as it says here, with sexually immoral people. It was something that got probably misunderstood, maybe even in some cases twisted. Some of them took that to mean that you just completely disassociate yourself from anybody in the world. Well, the world is our mission field, right? <laughs> so that is not to happen. But what they were doing was they may have disassociated themselves from immoral people, 
but completely ignored, turned a blind eye to the immorality that was taking place within the church community. They were getting it all backwards and messed up. So Paul is here having to correct that. This instruction could have easily been misunderstood. So he's having to get things straightened out. Since Christians are not of the world, but must be in the world, minister to the world, they must not separate themselves from, Paul's words, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. These people, again, as I said a moment ago, are the church's mission field. Now look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be that brother, as we said. So again, those who claim to be but aren't living what they claim to be in terms of this gross sin that's being taken care of here. And so to clear things up, Paul explains that. To protect the church from the corrupting influence of these so-called brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, they're told, don't even eat with them. Now, in the first century, having meals together was a big deal. In fact, in the first century, they had these things called love feasts, you know, sort of like a potluck. And it was in those potlucks that they also would partake together of the Lord's table. Scholars believe that that is what's in mind here when, in Paul, when Paul's writing this. Not only are they no longer to be a part of that love feast, but they no longer are allowed to partake of the Lord's table as well. He says, don't even eat with them. It's interesting. I think today for us, because we begin to think like, we begin to talk like those whom we hang out with, right? And spend time with. This isn't about shunning, as some understand shunning today. It is all about Proverbs 4.23, which you all know by heart, right? <laughs> Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those who are inside? God will judge those outside. It's his deal. And then he finishes up by saying, expel the wicked person from among you. We may very well have within this overall passage here in chapter 5, and an evidence of what Paul is talking about in those two verses. In other words, interestingly, have you noticed that Paul not once deals with the stepmother? Not mentioned. Only time she even gets referred to is she's the father's wife. Other than that, nothing is said with regards to any kind of discipline towards her. Why? It is believed because she is an unbeliever. She is not like the man who is within the church community claiming to be a brother in Christ. She's an unbeliever. So Paul is, in effect, 
putting into practice what he has just said. I'm not judging her because she's outside of the church. She's a part of the world. That's God's territory. God will judge her. Interesting, isn't it? All too often, we can be pretty active and become activists against the world's wickedness, but we fail to judge our own church communities. We turn the blind eye to it. We will find that Paul would later write in this letter in chapter 15, he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts. What? Come on, all you Bible scholars. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. Well, it's important to stay on track doctrinally, theologically, historically. The church has been quick to expel people over doctrinal matters. But despite all kinds of big theological issues that were going on in Corinth that Paul deals with in this letter, issues like unity of the body of Christ, chapters 1 through 4, spiritual gifts, chapters 11 through 14, the resurrection even, chapter 15. I think it is worth noting that Paul only called for this kind of decisive treatment of a believer on a moral issue that was bringing public disgrace to the church. May we be reminded today, as I said at the beginning of this message, nobody sins unto themselves. Nobody. It always affects others, like yeast, like leaven, affecting the batch of bread. This, this is the very nature of sin, isn't it? To spread and infect others, bringing about corruption and destruction. With regards to our responding to this message today, to chapter 5, I think this would be a perfect time to do an inventory in your own life and determine if there are any secret sins that could potentially grow up or blow up into open public scandal. Now is the time to turn away from those sins. And may we be reminded it is never, ever too late to turn away, to repent and save yourself from the humiliation of discipline either from the Lord himself or from the church community. The choice is yours. What will it be? And may we be reminded for the rest of our days this very, very bottom line core truth. As those who are in Christ, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. May our lives look like it. Amen.
Lord, we come before you this, this morning and we are, um, hopefully, we've been listening. Hopefully our ears and heart have been focused on you and your word. And hopefully we've heard a message that cuts straight to the heart. Hopefully it will be something that's not just heard but actually taken in up, applied and lived out the whole purpose God of your word for our lives isn't just to hear sermons but to take those sermons those messages based on God's word and to live them if conviction has happened here today may there be repentance may there be a turning to you God, may we recognize perhaps more than ever the seriousness of sin, any kind of sin, and the effects that it had, has on one another. May we put an end to our selfishness, to our desire to please ourselves only and not you. But God, may that get reversed. May our desire first and foremost be to please you, God and you only. I pray this for all of us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.